sing glory! Today, we're sitting down with Michael Ventura, founder of design agency Subrosa, Corvus Medicine practitioner and author of Applied Empathy, the new language of leadership. Empathy is perhaps in its truest form the separation of one's ego to the best of our ability and relating to that of our neighbor. It was Alfred Adler, Austrian psychotherapist and founder of the School of Individual Psychology who, in the simplest of terms, gave me my earliest understanding of the concept. Seeing with the eyes of another, listening with the ears of another, and feeling with the heart of another. Through the toil and discomfort of being in the human skin, many of us have come to realize and understand the children that we are. Therefore, the child essentially sitting across from us, whether that be the middle-aged man in a boardroom, our own partner, or the youth still defined by the body of one. A cognizance of oneself optimizes our capacity to connect with one another, a relearning of one of the many languages we seem to have lost along the way. I won't say we've cracked the code, but to be practiced in empathy makes for an invaluable asset both in career and personal affairs. Michael's track record only serving as a further reflection of this, with the likes of Google, Nike, and the Obama administration amongst his agency's clientele. And yet, perhaps most importantly, it may be that we're coming to see our neighbor for the very first time. This is Conversations Had in Public with Michael Ventura. A quick heads up, we're dealing with an overseas conversation here, so the audio may reflect this. Coming to you from New York and Amsterdam, the Netherlands. I think I was always a very curious child. I liked learning and experimenting and playing. And uh, when there's a funny anecdote, when I was at our dinner table one night, uh, my folks and my sister and I would eat dinner together every night. And my parents asked us the, the typical question that a lot of parents ask their children at some point where they said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I don't remember this conversation at all, but my mother told it to me years later uh, that she and my father remembered it. They asked that question, and I was probably nine years old at the time, and I said, uh, I want to be an idea man, which is an extremely strange phrase for a nine-year-old kid to use because like, it, like, my parents wouldn't talk that way. I don't know where I got that phrase from, but I said to them, I want to be an idea man. And they uh, said, oh, that's very nice or whatever pleasantry that parents say. But then they went back to their bedroom that night and they had this conversation about like, what is our child thinking? Like, you know, it's like most kids want to be a fireman or an astronaut. And, uh, and I said, I want to, you know, I want to work with ideas. And they were so confused, but supportive, but very like, uh, what's the right word for it? Maybe just cautious about what that might lead me to or not to, uh, if the, if, you know, if the road, if the, if the tides turn and I guess that's always been the case. I have always had an appetite for experimentation and challenging myself and being outside of my comfort zone and learning and playing with ideas and so as time has evolved, I don't think I've deviated much from it. I think I've probably refined my process of how I work that way. I've definitely 
made plenty of mistakes that have taught me things about working in the realm of ideas. Uh, and I think there are certain growth points that probably come up along the way too that I've had an opportunity to to struggle with and fail at and recover from and improve along the way. And you know, like one of them as a quick example was I was always very uh, nervous and um, scared of being a presenter and being in front of a large crowd and public speaking. And so much of my job and my life today is spent in front of a large yeah. crowd public speaking. And it, it doesn't mean that I still don't have, uh, you know, a pang of anxiety that rises up every now and again, or a, uh, a, a memory that is consistent with that feeling from when I was a kid, but I've gotten better at it. I've learned how to develop a way of doing it that feels safe and comfortable for me because that, that pressure, that anxiety, that, that fear of being in front of people actually was a great teacher. And what does that look like? How do you prepare for that? So uh, I don't write the specific words I'm going to say. I think that's probably the thing that I struggled with the most was I'm not a good memorizer. I've never been a good memorizer. Anything, any sort of subject in school that required some sort of, uh, of real memorization in order to be successful. I was never great at And so I had a lot of anxiety about public speaking because I always thought you had to memorize your talk word for word. And then at some point in my like probably late teens, early twenties, when I was in college, I realized there was another way, which is know the know the 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 headline or the sort of point you're trying to make on this particular slide or this particular moment in the presentation but present it however you see fit and so that has really become the way I present and go through work on stage now is that I have a sense of what the message is or the point is but if I gave that talk 10 times, it will be 10 different talks. And for me, that's somehow more comfortable than less because it's more in the way my brain works. And just jumping back to that moment with your parents, did they see this develop in any way? This ideas man, where after you mentioned that, how did they kind of support that? And you, you don't remember that moment, but perhaps there are, say, activities you did as a kid or... How did that kind of manifest? Well, I think we were a household that was always very encouraging of learning new things and experimenting and trying new things. I w we were not a household that was um, really... Uh, there wasn't a lot of pressure to be the best, but there also was not a lot of permission to just quit whenever it gets hard. So we had this nice tension between the two that, you know, if I wanted to learn piano, which I did, uh, I took some lessons and then after I took some lessons and I was realizing this is actually pretty tough and I'm not really enjoying it, uh, th there wasn't like a, oh, that's okay, you don't have to learn piano anymore. There was a, well, 
that's part of learning it is you're going to have to go through some more challenging parts or you're going to have to struggle with it a little bit. Um, and, you know, and what we ended up doing was actually changing the teacher after about a year and a half. And I got a new piano teacher and then I stuck with it for eight years because the, uh, the new piano teacher was the right one for my style of learning. So, you know, I think the thing that my parents were always very good at was helping, A, encourage my curiosity, whether it was piano or sports or whatever it was, um, and then, B, watching when I run into just with it and helping me learn how to work through them. And I'd almost say that that transition in teacher, he was empathic towards the way in which you wanted to, well, in, in the way in which you were receptive and absorb information, which is kind of everything we're going to talk about, empathy. But for now, how, how do you explain to people what you do? I know we hate the word label, but what's, what's your label? Hmm. Uh, the way I often describe it is that I have many jobs, but really the, they all perform the same function, which is connecting with empathy to help people understand what stands in the way of them getting where they want to go, and then helping work with them to remove that obstacle so that they can get there. could give us a little backstory. There's just so much to cover. Um, I almost kind of feel like referencing people to The Good Life Project, which is another podcast, and I feel that that interview you did was so... It really got to the core and essence of what you do. And people listening to this episode, I really want to refer them to that episode as well because there are different things that I want to cover here, but I feel that that really goes in depth to your journey in Corvus Medicine as a healer and your practice as well. And that whole entire journey is insane. But for now, in this episode, if you could kind of more succinctly break down your trajectory. Sure. Um, And thank you. That's that's sweet to hear. I would say... When I started my career after leaving university, I worked for a ad agency for a year and then was unceremoniously laid off and was figuring out what to do as a 23-year-old who had one year of professional experience in a recession. I decided to start a digital studio somewhere where we could make websites and develop social strategy and things like that for clients who wanted to play in the digital space. And this was 2003. So this was, you know, when, when that was still pretty new territory. And, you know, people often say to me, well, what made you think you had any credibility to do that at that age? And my answer is always, well, what gives anybody credibility to do something? It's will, it's experience, uh, it's know-how. Um, And while I didn't have professional experience, I grew up in a world that was becoming digital, and yet I was born analog, right? I was born in 1980, so my my childhood was technology-free, but I received the first digital education in a formal uh, context because that was, you know, in my in my uh, upbringing, that was when technology started getting taught in schools, and so I had this unique perspective. I think that really only a couple uh, of the one slice of this generation has, which was that they were born analog but received a, the first digital education. 
So we started this agency and it evolved and it has continued to grow and it has changed names and it has removed partners and it has gained partners and it has become all of these different things. And what it is now, it's called Subrosa and it's a strategy and design practice. And we work with large organizations and help them figure out culture issues and brand challenges and business challenges. Um, there's about 50 of us based in New York doing that work. But along the way, I also realized I had to do a lot more work on myself and had to really learn how to take care of myself uh, because I was falling apart in many ways, emotionally, physically, spiritually. And I found a series of different practitioners who worked in alternative medicines from a variety of different traditions and modalities. And over time, with my own practice and my own dedication, uh, I started to learn how to handle my stress and learned how to uh, work with myself in, in new and different ways. And about 12 years ago, uh, after having worked with them for, for nearly a decade, uh, I began to practice. And so that's Corvus. Uh, and so between Subrosa and Corvus, I have two very different, superficially very different businesses, right? One the it's like a consultancy that goes into organizations and helps them fix problems. And the other is people doing one-on-one -on -one self work through physical body work, through prayer, through somatic release, through energy work, through all of these different things. And yet in my view, going back to answering the question that you asked moments ago, it's the same job. It's the same exact thing. We're just using empathy to help connect with people, understand the challenges, understand the root causes, and use different tools. Sometimes we might use strategy and frameworks or design, and sometimes we might use touch or song or prayer, but ultimately the results should be the same, which is understanding how to move past this challenge into the next chapter. And how do you set up the design with which you try to live by? How do you intentionally, say, want to work and move through time daily, but also long term? So I think on a very practical level, what I try to do is not look at any of these things as separate responsibilities or jobs, right? It's all the same thing. So, you know, the way I use my time on a daily basis is balanced between these things. I, I am generally speaking, seeing two to three people a day for one-on-one -on -one work. I am in the office working with my team and my clients uh, in between those times. And there isn't a, uh, a switch. There isn't a now I'm going into this other place and I'm going to be a different person uh, or I'm going to work with in, in a different way. It's, it's all kind of seen as one and the same. So in thinking about time and chronology and, and the evolution of all of this, I think one of the things that I've started to see over the past few years is that people are looking for a more integrated conversation. You know, it, particularly in the States, a lot of the, the wellness and alternative medicine and sort of the quote-unquote new age work that takes place was very um, separate from corporate America and corporate conversations up until maybe five, six years ago. And people, you know, might there might have been people who were yogis or were meditators who also worked in corporate America, but it didn't get talked about until mindfulness and wellness really started to become 
part of the the dialogue of the culture of an organization what it what it wants from it for its employees and how it wants to encourage certain things and so now I've started to see the, the, the worlds blur a lot for me and clients who I've had on one side become clients on the other side. Uh, they, you know, they start to ask how they can do more of these sorts of things with their teams or their, or their you know, partners or what have you. So the, I think the, those two seemingly different worlds are becoming closer and closer together as time goes on. When you first started bridging business with empathy which you've now written a book on applied empathy and this formula we wish you you start to implement and it's you know it's taking form and it's gaining traction by the likes of not even say those within your own industry but you know the obama administration and the united states military academy not your everyday crowd so right (laughs) when that started happening You've kind of somewhat been taken out of your comfort zone. I um, would you agree with this? Yeah, I would say that I think the the audience was different, but the material was the same. So I was still comfortable talking about it. I was just maybe talking about it in rooms that I never anticipated being in. Yeah, I, I was going to say, did this bring anything up for you personally that maybe you hadn't realized you had addressed or? Maybe there's something with regards to self-limiting beliefs, but I can see you're probably just going in there with maybe some pre-jitters, but that was it. Yeah, I think that going into those rooms, there was always an opportunity to learn something and to be humbled by the experience because every single one of those conversations, be that a corporation or students at a military academy or the Obama team or whatever it was, all really were seekers and generous with their curiosity. And, you know, going back to that kid sitting at the kitchen table, you know, I just wanted to share an idea. And, and they were interested in listening. And our collaboration became meaningful because we found a way to work together. And so what did that teach you about the concept of applied empathy and seeing that these people who you weren't anticipating and that it would resonate with them and you know they're not clients and it's not a design brief what did that make you realize a couple things it made me realize that it was in high demand first and foremost because these these various different groups were all looking for it it made me realize that there wasn't a lot of resources that made it accessible or helpful because people hear empathy and in my experience, it is one of the most often misdefined terms. There are so many different different perceived definitions of it in people's minds. And so when you tell people empathy, some people think it's about being nice. Some people think it's about compassion. Some people think it's synonymous with sympathy. Uh, n- none of those are accurate definitions. And so as we start, to, th- often those are side effects of empathy. So then when we start to work, and talk about what empathy truly is, which is about perspective taking and seeing the world from someone else's point of view without any of your bias influencing that, then all of a sudden you start to realize how much importance one can place on the role of empathy in being a great leader, being a great problem solver, being a great teammate, 
being great partner, whatever it is. And so the, the invitation to go into these different spaces and talk about it was really an invitation to help define it for many people or redefine it so that it became clear what it is and, and, and frankly what it isn't. I'd like to hear more about how that went in the national parks and working with younger generations because I'm not necessarily clear on was it educating them on, say, looking to nature and these spaces with respect and how to interact and engage with the natural world? So it's a project that took a lot, that had a lot of different challenges in it. So in the Obama administration, in their second term, they had about 18 months left before they would leave office. And they realized that they had launched several initiatives that they weren't going to complete successfully before their time was up. And in order to do that, they needed to bring in different partners to help them usher those into completion. And so one of them is what one of those projects was a uh, was called Every Kid in a Park. And Every Kid in a Park was designed to bring fourth grade, so roughly 10-year-old children in America, to national parks because there was a lot of neuroscience that had been done around this. And they learned that if you give children access to nature and they can build an appreciation for nature at a young age while their mind is still fully forming, you can the, the side effect of that or the knock-on effect of that is that these children grow up to be more conscious citizens, they become more apt to care for the environment, to volunteer, you know, it basically breeds a more thoughtful person. And so the Obama team had asked us to take a look at the program and figure out how to make it successful because it was complicated, you know, in particularly in uh, inner city and low income districts in the U.S., there is, uh, you know, the, the schools are not well-funded, the teachers are not well-paid, the kids don't have a safe uh, feeling walking in and out of those buildings every day. There's, you know, metal detectors looking for weapons and things like that. They may not have a safe environment at home to go to. You know, there's a lot of complexity. And so what we had to do was come into this project and use empathy to look at the various different touch points along this journey and figure out solutions that would make sense. So for one, how do we reach these kids? How do we talk to these kids and explain to them in a way that doesn't sound like an adult trying to tell a kid that they need to go to a park, which makes, you know, they're not going to understand why or how or for what reason. We have to figure out a way to empathize and connect with them and understand what their needs are. We have to connect with parents because parents are actually going to be the ones that are going to make the decision to go to the national park if the school doesn't. And how do we make sure that the parents have the right information and the right resources? So things like giving them vouchers so that they could ride trains or take flights to go to national parks without you know, bankrupting their bank accounts. And then also working with teachers who we all know don't need more work on their plates. They're already overworked and don't have a lot of resources. And giving them different toolkits that they could use so that if they took a class to a national park, they might be able to have a plug-and-play way of working with a history curriculum to talk with them about the history of the parks, 
a geology curriculum to talk about the rock formations, a, uh, you know, an environmental curriculum that talks about flora and fauna and how they exist in harmony and, and you know, how the, you know, how the, how the ecosystems are born. Um, you know, so there are all of these different things that we developed for this program that were bespoke to and empathic to the needs of various different audiences in order to make it successful. And would you say you succeeded? We, well, yes and no. I think we succeeded during the Obama administration and the program was, was, uh, had a like, massive uh, rate of increase of engagement because people really found it to be effective. Uh, in the current administration, yeah. um, which we all know is is a challenging one, or I imagine most people know it's a challenging one. Yeah. Um, there there isn't a lot of empathy at all. Certainly, there isn't a lot of respect for Definitely the national parks. <laughs> yeah, and so um, so this program doesn't exist anymore. I mean, it's basically uh, gone on uh, you know gone dark because this is not a priority for the Trump administration. Yeah. So. Was it a success? It was when we had an enlightened leader who, whether you know people believe everything that Obama did was right or wrong, it's not for me to say, but was enlightened on this particular topic and said this was something we should do for our citizens, and we were happy to serve that piece of work. And I wish, I wish that, uh, I wish it was still alive. Yeah, and I know you have a lot on your on your plate, but would this perhaps be something that you'd want to branch out into? I think that I am a teach a man to fish kind of person more so. Uh, so like I, I actually prefer to be able to build these programs and hand them off to people so that they can continue to run and flourish versus, you know, going down the rabbit hole of, of running them, uh, myself or, or running them with the team, you know, I think what Sub Rosa has done a really good job of is figuring out ways to do the work we do with our clients such that over time they feel confident and empowered to do this work for themselves. Yeah. And so that that's really the work I, I'm here to do. At Sub Rosa, what have you found your clients and their businesses are mirroring with regards to society today? Are there any ongoing themes or overlaps you find yourself continuously addressing as an agency? Particularly in the last 18 months, we've had a lot of work in diversity, inclusion, and equity programs for organizations because in the wake of the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter and a very extremist presidency, and all of these things, um, particularly for U.S.-run companies, uh, a lot of uh, diversity issues have come to the surface. And uh, a lot of things that had historically been kept under the rug are now rearing their heads and need, need solutions that make sense. And so a lot of the work that we have been getting asked to do as a theme of late is helping companies a diagnose what is the, what is the issue what is the root cause of this why don't we have enough diversity why do we have these inclusion issues why don't we know how to communicate this effectively to our teams why don't we know how to train it in our leadership um, and then helping them to to do that so that's been a that's been a big theme another that I think comes up a lot for us is 
helping align a company's vision and mission to that of the the greater world and the ecosystem we all live within. So sometimes that takes the shape of thinking about corporate social responsibility or environmental policy. Sometimes it takes the shape of deep consumer insights and understanding that the way you used to run your business and the products you used to make for your uh, for your customers maybe don't resonate anymore because you haven't done the work to get out there and talk with them and to understand what they actually need. And so for us to go and do research and live and work inside the communities that these companies are trying to build products for and then go back to them and tell them what we found has really helped them think about their supply chain, helped them think about the way their products are designed, the way their marketing and their communications changes and evolves over time. So a lot of those themes that we see, be that diversity and inclusion or vision work or environmental policy or all of them, tend to kind of point to the realization for many companies that in order to be successful, they cannot be myopic, but instead need to be a participant in the broader world that they live inside of. And I love the empathetic archetypes, especially the sage and the alchemist, but I can imagine when you first brought applied empathy to Sobrosa, you know, lingo can still, it can still peak someone's woo-woo radar or make eyebrows go up, especially when they hear alchemist. What was that first client like when first brought applied empathy to the table? So early on, we had developed these seven different archetypes that were ways we could practice empathy uh, and and elicit deeper understanding. So to your point, yeah, the um, the sage is a behavior, right? The sage is a is an archetype that has a behavior. That behavior is to be present, to signal presence, to let people know that in this moment we value the connection we have. I'm not on my phone. I'm not doing other stuff. And that there's wisdom that you gain from being fully present with someone that you can't gain if you're distracted. And so uh, we have seven different ones, and we use them in different ways. But in the early days, we didn't even go into a client and talk about them with the client. It was just a behavior we as Subrosa took on. And we said when we were thinking about solutions, when we were thinking about problems, uh, are we being exhaustive? Are we looking at them from all seven different archetypes? Are we being thoughtful about how these archetypes inform our recommendations? And over time, some clients, we felt it was okay to talk about the process with in more detail. Uh, and then now, at this point, having written the book and the book being out in the world for the past year, uh, clients come to us overtly asking to work in this way. So it's been a really nice evolution, but we've always been very cautious of forcing people to drink our Kool-Aid too heavily because, you know, truthfully, we don't need the client to have to, you know, uh, uh, they don't have to see the whole factory to know what the product is at the end of the day. And so sometimes it's it's more productive and more helpful to just do our work the way we do it and make sure they get the solution they need. Other times we have clients that want to come along for the ride and we encourage that and welcome it. Um, and so, you know, we kind of go both ways depending on the need. Coming back to you um, and where you're currently at and say looking at 
the organism of your, your life, quality in terms of growth, consumption, dialogue, connection, and asking that question of how much is enough. Is this something that you ask yourself on the daily? Is this something you're intentional about in cultivating? I don't think I ask that question ever, to be honest with you. I, um, I don't have a real want to assume that I know what all of this is leading towards. And I prefer to listen to my intuition, to follow my gut. Love that. To see, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, to see what presents itself and what feels like the right decision to make in those moments and to go with it. And good things often, if not always, follow when I make those choices. Sure, sometimes your gut is going to tell you to do something that's hard or that you don't want to do, but it doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do. It just might mean that it's a hard thing to do, but it might be a hard right thing to do. And so I don't have some like chart on my wall that says when we get to this point, I'll have enough. Like, I, you know, I don't, I, quantifying this almost takes some of the specialness away from it. What I prefer to do instead is see where it, where the, where the asks are coming from, where the needs are emerging and following them to the best of our ability so that we can ultimately share this message and, and help people bring empathy into their work and their practice more fully. The other thing I'll add is in Corvus and the alternative medicine practice, um, so much of that practice is actually grounded in work that is based in the navel and working from that point in the gut, quite literally, to help adjust and bring attention and power and healing to that place where we often forget we have great answers because we get so used to making answers from our head. And so in that practice, getting someone oriented into their navel, into where they began when they first took life, when they were inside their mother, right? The navel was our first connection. Yeah. How, do we make, how do we make someone's connection to that place as strong as it once was so that they're listening to that more regularly? We're seeing everything as correlating back to the gut-brain connection. And gosh, I feel everyone I'm talking to lately, it's everything just leads right back to the gut and we see it in illness with the chakra systems or there's such an overlap in so many different cultures where it goes right back to the gut. And I just want to bring this up quickly. Someone sent me through a quote today and it's the, this thing that speaks so beautifully to this, it's the, the stomach sways the world. I like that. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of, say, taking that question, how much is enough, and applying that to Seb Rosa, or what are your thoughts on, say, within a business context and scaling the company? Um, because nothing is ever prosperous. There's give and take, and there's life and death, and instead of always growing, 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 consuming. And have you ever thought of Sebrosa within that context? So we are on a really great trajectory as a business in that um, we have great clients. We have a great internal team. The work product we're doing is solid. 
we don't have a desire to be a 200, 300 person company. That's not to say that that's the wrong thing for some companies, but for, for this company, uh, it's not, it's not what we're, growth does not mean headcount, right? Growth can be measured in a lot of different ways. It can be measured in impact. It can be measured in satisfaction. It could be measured in a whole host of ways. And so as a, as a leader who is thinking about where this business is going, I'm looking at growth not in terms of how many people we have or how much revenue we've got. Yes, would we like to continue to grow our revenue? Yeah, and we absolutely will. Um, but we're not going to do it at the sacrifice of things that we hold dear and important, like our culture and our ability to collaborate and working with this, the type of clients that we think can make impact in the world in the right way. I want to ask a question. How do you how do you play within your own life? How do you make space for play? Do you play? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. What do you do? In lots in lots of ways. Um, I think one of the things that brings me a constant sense of joy and play on a daily basis is uh, my dog. Um, I think that having an animal that I love and can play with in a nonverbal way, just like physically and emotionally, um, is a really special daily way that play shows up in my life. This dog makes me laugh harder than some of the funniest people I know. Um, and we have just such a great relationship and it's really sweet. And the one that I have with my wife and the dog is also very dynamically interesting and funny and she, and she gets a kick out of him in so many ways too. Um, my wife and I both are big fans of travel. And I think that one of the things that we like to do, and it doesn't mean it has to be into some exotic or far, far away place, but to leave New York and to experience things in other cultures, in other cities, in other towns, in other parts of the, the world, and also just in, within the States, um, gives us an opportunity to play in a, in a way that feels um, additive in that we're learning, we're exploring, we're growing, we're having adventures, we're, we're, we're working together to kind of continue to evolve our relationship as a partnership, but also in, uh, in the context of you know, our broader friends and family and, and the community we share. And what have you found that in having been given the tools by all of these, I mean, to name one, Master Roo. Still can't wrap my head around that. Could you give a little backstory to Master Roo? <laughs> yeah, Master Roo is a special man. Um, it was his birthday this past week. So oh. he is my uh, Taoist teacher who really took me under his wing to teach me uh, the traditions of both Qigong and Tai Chi, tai chi Chuan, which are Taoist practices that helped me learn and evolve my sense of spiritual self and physical self. Um, I was in a low point physically and emotionally and spiritually probably about 15 years ago and had tons of issues that we'll save for another time because it's a long story. But um, I told my wife after having thought about all the different ways I might approach fixing or solving or working through some of those issues that I wanted to learn Tai Chi. 
and we were on our way. It was, it was, it was winter time. We were on our way to a dinner at a friend that a friend was throwing for his birthday. And we walked in the restaurant and there were 50 people there. And I knew most of them. There was this one small Asian man just kind of weaving through the crowd. And he, as I entered the room, he was getting closer and closer. And as I like walked in to say hello to my friend on his birthday, I turned to my right and this man was standing right there. And he put his hand out and he said, hi, I'm Master Wu. I teach Tai Chi. And there's an expression that the, the teachers always find you. And I think in this case, I had put out to the world that I wanted to learn something. And within 24 hours, Master Ru showed up and he gave me all of the support I needed, um, sometimes in a tough and un, uh, unflattering way, uh, but ultimately taught me a tradition that is a very critical part of my life. How has you being a practitioner, not yourself, further helped you facilitate and hold space for people? You always get better the more practice you do, and that's true with everything. And I think now, having been at work doing this for nearly a decade, if not a little more, um, you continue to learn how to refine your way of doing it that makes people feel connected and supported. And, uh, and so holding space is really... You know, I always tell people the the session, the treatment, the the appointment begins when they send the email asking for a time, because we as practitioners are holding space for that person from the moment we receive that note until the moment they leave, and often longer after as well. So, you know, for me, holding space for people and making sure that I can create the environment where they can heal themselves, because I also believe that I think often, particularly in the West, we put a lot of the healing capacity on the practitioner. And I'm not a big believer in that. I believe that we are creating the, the, the circumstances and the space where your own innate ability to heal yourself is empowered. And so, yeah, that's that's the job. In you teaching applied empathy, have you found that people no longer necessarily see it as a need to do so at some point, but it, that need is replaced by a desire? Because I feel like it's, we all have it in us, but it's almost that relearning of full, authentic, yeah, being human, humanity. And connecting back to that core and then expanding out as one is meant to and not necessarily in the sense of what people, what you referred to earlier as what we see as empathy is perhaps, you know, being the, a good person and the martyr and, you know, not looking at you yourself first and then being able to be there for others and connect with people and out of a place of alignment. Have you seen that that need is replaced by just a desire to do so at the end of the day because people are, they're really connecting and there's nothing that beats real human connection. Yeah, I think that we are, as we live in an increasingly digital world, starved for human connection and are replacing what is authentic human connection as virtual connection. And that has, you know, that has real effects on people. It has real effects on the way things 
resonate in our relationships and the way we make time for each other and the way we share space together. And so, um, yeah, we are, uh, you know, I think living in a time and place that would benefit from more true, honest, one-to-one human connection. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think you're, you're right to say that that's probably a trend that will continue. And I was wondering, do you have any references or perhaps people that you look to um, as staples within your day that flip that switch for you from you're in a negative headspace and you're like, I just need some boost of positivity right now? Well, first of all, thank you for asking the questions you've asked and for making the time because this is a it's a really great conversation and one that I, I, I love to, to share. Um, I would say the person who popped to mind first is uh, is a woman named Esther Perel. Um, she is uh, a newer friend of mine uh, and a relationship guru of many ways. Uh, she is uh, she has wonderful TED talks that one can track down, um, and she really looks at the way we are building and maintaining relationships with people we love. Uh, and has a very unique and interesting perspective on it. So I would I would always encourage people to, to look into that a little bit more because life is life is better with good relationships around us, and that's not just romantic ones. That's of all kinds. This is Michael Ventura of Guts and Glory signing off. This was Conversations Had in Public with Michael Ventura. Refer to the show notes to further get to know our guest. Share your thoughts and show us some love by subscribing. Organ Touch to be featured on the podcast. Released every other Monday. Thanks for lending us an ear. Passing on the mic.